Fualcha, 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 Akharja Gail. This is episode 41 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I am your host, Anla O'Carolan, and today's guest on the podcast is the director of the Arts and Media Department of the Laji Centre, Mohammed Alaza. As some of you already know, we are working our arses off at the minute to open the Palestine Community Gym in the Laji Centre, which supports the residents of the Ada Refugee Camp, which is a refugee camp of over 5,500 people just outside of Bethlehem City in the West Bank. I first met Mohammed when I was over in Palestine in March of last year, and he has an amazing story to tell from a personal perspective, which I think is going to be very useful to give you an insight into what people have to go through on a day-to-day basis there. We also discussed what it is like to be a Palestinian in the West Bank, what life is like in the Ada refugee camp in terms of the health situation there and the resources and the amenities and facilities that they have and haven't got access to. And... I think it's going to just be a really eye-opening episode for you to sit down and listen to. It's tough listening at times, but it's going to be worth it. And if you are looking to get behind our Palestine Community Gym Project, then this really is kind of essential listening coming up in the next hour or so. To give you a bit of background information about what the Palestine Community Gym is all about and where the idea came from. First of all, if you do want to check it out on the social media platforms, we're we're at Palestine Gym on Instagram, we're on Facebook under Palestine Community Gym, and in the GoFundMe page also you will find us there if you put Palestine Community Gym into the GoFundMe search bar at GoFundMe.com. As most of you know, this podcast is kind of a side hustle for me to the main gig and the main thing that I busy myself with on a day-to-day basis and that is as a strength and conditioning coach and as managing director and the founder of Ackley which is a personal training facility in Cork City Centre. Ackley has been open just over six years now and I've been working in the field of strength and conditioning, movement, biomechanics and health and sports performance for the last around 14 years or so and I was lucky enough to go and visit Palestine last year and one of the organizations that I really struck a chord with was the or that really struck a chord with me rather was the Laji Center which is a grassroots community support organization that is based in the Ida refugee camp which is home to over five and a half thousand Palestinian refugees in the West Bank. Because of the living conditions in the Ada refugee camp, the ongoing occupation by the Israeli army, the cramped living conditions and the constant threat from the Israeli army from coming in and invading houses in the middle of the night, shooting tear gas into the camp, into the children's playground and into the Laji Centre itself, firing live rounds and the lack of facilities and amenities at the camp really has had a massive impact on people's day-to-day lives and some of the most negative health side effects that have come out of that have been cardiovascular disease, high levels of diabetes, high levels of hypertension or high blood pressure and a whole host of mental health problems that comes with the trauma 
of living in a conflict zone, which are many from being injured by the army, being arrested for no reason, being fired upon, having your house invaded or having loved ones or family members imprisoned, maimed or even killed at the hands of the Israeli army. And one night I was sitting there just having a chat with one of the founders of the Laji Centre, Salah, when we were talking about these health issues and I floated the idea of uh, some sort of community-led health project and asked if they had ever thought of opening a gym and Salah said that they didn't really know where they would start with opening the gym and that's kind of when the idea came because the kind of light bulbs were going off in my head that we could use the skills and the expertise and the practical experience that we've built up in Ackley over the last six years and that I've built up over the last 14 years of helping people with their health to do something positive out in Palestine with our friends in the Eider refugee camp. And if you are familiar with what Ackley does, we kind of have four main pillars or four main philosophies that drive everything that we do at Ackley. One is to focus on good quality movement when we're doing our training so that it has the maximal positive impact on our day-to-day lives and keeps us pain-free, strong and mobile for as long as possible. That we encourage the people on our members and ourselves to eat real food, share food, enjoy cooking food and to kind of turn away from the fad diets, gimmicks and supplements and all that there and just focus on sharing and enjoying real good quality wholesome food. The third philosophy that we have at Ackley is to lead by example and to do what we're suggesting for other people to do ourselves. And the fourth, which probably has led us down this road of wanting to open this Palestine community gym is to create a positive change, to create a positive change with the members that we work with for the community that we're based in and also further afield. So this is a massive opportunity for us at Ackley to help our friends in Palestine to do something positive on f- for our friends out there who are living under horrendous conditions because of this Israeli occupation. And that's really where the project came from. The plan for the project is to raise a total of 30 grand between the GoFundMe campaign and various events that we're running in Cork, Belfast, up in Clare and a few other places around the country. We have a nice little team assembled, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, and what we would like to do is raise 30 grand, which should be enough to fund the equipment and renovation of a room in the Ladi Centre to turn it into the gym that we would like to build for the people of the Ada refugee camp. And that would also fund the travel and training expenses of four young people from the camp to come over to us to Ackley so that we can train them in the systems of training that we've developed ourselves and that have been so effective for us in the help in, in the way that we help people who are training with us in situ. So what we really want to do is export that practical experience and that, that expertise and the knowledge that we're after building up and, and to put it to good use in the West Bank to help people that really need that help right now and that deserve to be to be heard in the world because as you'll hear Mohammed saying 
a lot of the stories that, that come out of Palestine, you won't hear them on the news. You have to hear them straight from the horse's mouth and straight from sort of first-hand accounts of what's going on out there or being able to go out and see for ourselves what's happening there, which is what I did last year. There is something very exciting happening with this project at the minute, and it's the Tunes for Palestine campaign. It just launched yesterday, and what it is is musicians all around the country are starting to post videos of themselves playing a tune under the hashtag Tunes for Palestine. That's Tunes, the number four, Palestine. And you'll see the videos that have been posted already under that hashtag on Instagram. Gur a kid me to Connor Crimmins for driving that campaign. Thanks a million to the other people who have also posted videos so far. Josh Kelly, Darren Roach from Moxie, Dara Griffin from the band Hermitage Green, Alan Reed, Gur a kid kid And you can go and check those videos out under the hashtag tunes for Palestine. And if you're a musician yourself, then why don't I just post a wee video? Donate something to the GoFundMe campaign, nominate two people and let's build a bit of awareness and get a bit of momentum behind, behind this campaign and get people more people to know about the Palestine community gym. I want to do just a couple of shout outs to people who have been supporting the podcast online this week. First and foremost to my old classmate Neil O'Donnell. This is the biggest shout out of the podcast so far that's gone all the way up to and try our for you a cara gura kid me get as a vague guest at listen Paul Crillo. I heard you were giving out that you hadn't got a shout out yet on the podcast, so this is it. Gura Maigat as a guest jacked August Kenny Fiery. Cleana our Instagram Gura Mila Maigat as a guest jacked August as Nichak Drakti August K as well on Instagram. Thanks a million for the feedback for last week's episode it is really nice to get that feedback and also great to hear that you're listening and enjoying the podcast so let's get stuck into this conversation with Muhammad. it is as i said not easy listening and Muhammad does share uh, quite a personal story with us and also gives us a great insight into what life is like at the Ada refugee camp, as well as the positive work that they're doing at the Lazi Centre. Aurelian. So I'm uh, Mohammed Al-Azza and I'm originally from Bejibreen where uh, my grandparents come from after 1948 and I was born and growing up in a refugee camp and I still live in this camp with my family. I grew up uh, with Laji Center, I learned uh, photography and doing short films as well through the center and since 2009 I'm working here at uh, the center as a director of the media unit. Uh, part of my work, I work as a freelance uh, journalist, mainly in Berlin. Um, Aida Cam, it is uh, the same 
story of all the other refugees camp, which is officially was established in 1950. Um, Onorwa, uh, they rent the land of Aida for 99 years, and then each family who arrive uh, to this camp, they give them a tent. They live under this tent between five to seven years. And after that, they found it difficult for these families to continue living under these tents. So they built them a small uh, rooms, which is in that time, if the family was up to seven, uh, they gave them two rooms and each room is three by three meters. Later, today, completely, the houses completely changed. Each family, when they start work slowly, they destroyed the old rooms and they built their own house, which has given them the possibility to build more. Uh, houses like on top of each other's or floors on top of each other's uh, for uh, to feed the uh, to have a space for the rest of the family. Uh, completely today, like we didn't have much of these rooms, like maybe we have two left uh, from the 50. Today, it's uh, all is changed. Uh, life uh, every day it's come more harder. Every year it's come more complicated because the same space we got from. The United Nation in the 50 is still uh, the same, which is we're talking about less than half kilo square meter, uh, the size of the camp. Uh, so it's come more harder the life, it's more crowded, uh, you never feel free inside your house, uh, even no privacies. Um, to be inside this or to live in this camp is not comfortable at all, even. Uh, imagine like not easy like you could do anything in your house uh, because it's like really close to each other's the houses small walls between uh, these houses um, even beside of this which is in the first 20 uh, 20 years in in the camp was no underground system like was no water and was no electricity even the sewage water was running in the street so all of this it's built later uh, inside the camp and which is today, okay, we got uh, some electricity. Uh, so we got, uh, today we got um, some, uh, the water system and electricity, but we're still also suffering until today from this, because both of it, it's controlled by Israel, water and electricity. And I could say electricity, it's more in winter, we feel or we suffer from, it cuts for a couple of hours and it's back, it depends. But I could say the bigger problem for us, it is water shortage in, in, in Ida camp. And this issue is not just in Ida today, it's in all West Bank and Gaza Strip because Israel control from this water 83% and just 17% for the Palestinian who lives in West Bank. So in the camp, sometimes we have no water uh, for one week, two weeks, three weeks. Longest time was more than 72 days. We have no water. So that's why if you look all the Palestinian roof, you will find loads of tanks water, and through this, they try to save as much they can uh, in these tanks uh, until it comes the next time the water. Even it doesn't fix or it helps these tanks, even it, yeah, it makes another problem or issue uh, for us in the camp because to keep the water inside these, ta these tanks for a uh, long time, and especially in the summer, it's very hot here. So it's create a lot of bacteria inside this water. So we have always to check if we have clean water or not uh, inside these tanks. So when you say about the, the Israel controlling the water and the electricity, do they just 
choose when they want to turn it on and turn it off? Just random, or how does it work? Um, after all the agreements they made with the Palestinian Authority, uh, usually they sell it to the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority they have to sell it to the people, to the Palestinian people. But the problem, the water they give it to the Palestinian Authority is not enough water, and this is the problem. So, for the Israeli, it's 24 hours water. They have no fresh, uh, they don't have tanks water. The settlements near Aida, it's like less than two kilometers. They have 24 hour fresh water swimming pool, gardens, everything. We're supposed to get the water in Aida every week for one day for six hours. And this is not enough for all the family to fill their tanks of water. Uh, and this is, I could say, it's not because of the Palestinian Authority, because of the water they give it to the Bethlehem city. So they give limit, uh, I think, 10,000, uh, I don't know how it's called with water collection, but it's like very small number, like the water, uh, very limit. Like it doesn't, it's not enough for all Bethlehem residents. I'm talking just about Bethlehem. And this is make it more harder for the people, not easy or not always to have water in their homes. So did you say that they turn the water on for one day every six, day, six days? Yeah. At the minute, right now, that's what happens? Uh, this is usually we suffer from, especially in the summer. In winter, a little less, because, you know, in winter, not a lot you're going to use water. But in the summer, we suffer from it a lot. In the camp, like, what's life like for, say, for children in the camp? Um... In the life in uh, in the camp for uh, the children, it is completely different than other places in in all the world. I can say uh, completely different. Uh, like uh, I don't know what what to, to say, but the most important besides living in a refugee camp, uh, these kids they never feel are safe or secure. You know. It is like in any moment they could be attacked by the Israel army, especially. So they never feel comfortable even inside uh, this camp. Uh, if I'm talking about uh, the camp, especially the second intifada, it is one of the most places attacked by the Israel army and is still attacked. The soldier kind of every day, every two days, three days inside the camp. And especially in the middle of the night these days, especially. They come most of the time for training their soldiers. Uh, they searching different houses and a few times they arrested people or young people from the camp. And you never know what's the reason the moment they come to your house. You will know about your uh, child after like one week to week. You will hear about him when he gets arrested. Um, so these invading, it makes a lot of trauma to these children, I could say. Uh, lots of them uh, they cannot sleep well in, inside in the middle of the night or especially in the night because they start feeling like the soldier they will come any moment in their home uh, lots of kids they pee on themselves even um, even I could say the situations come more complicated especially when they build the apartheid wall surrounded the camp which is we're talking in the year 2004 before 2004, the Aida residents, because we have no space, 
inside the camp, like for children to play or for families to hang out or to have a good time. The land behind the wall, it was like open, big open land. It was related to the Armenian church. But as I didn't, we used to spend most of our time there. After the wall, we have no place to go. So it's make it more harder. It's make it more sensitive even for the families inside the camp. And it caused lots of problems for us because of the military watchtowers they built with this wall. It's very close to the people's houses, the military base in front of the camp. Uh, so you always watched by these soldiers, <clears throat> by these snipers. They have more than even 20 security cameras. Um, so it's make it more complicated and more harder. Even the employment is getting higher inside the camp because lots of people, they used to work on the land behind the wall, like to Jerusalem, to this area. Today, they cannot go there. They have to apply for a permit, and it's not easy to get this permit. Okay, we have uh, no place, but through the center, we worked hardly <coughs> to buy the land, which is the only open land uh, left after the wall, nearby the camp. So we bought the, we bought the, uh, the land. We made this a project for the children and the family, which is not the best place, but we don't have other choice because still even it's not safe. This playground in front of the military base many times was attacked by the soldier. Kids, you could see them playing in the garden, and suddenly one soldier, he shot like one tear gas. Or the soldier, they come into the garden, which has happened lots of times. They arrested some kids uh, from uh, the garden here. So lots of kids, even who comes to our organization, they kind of a little bit afraid <coughs> to come to this area because they know it is very sensitive and any moment the soldier they will come and we try to make all our best on this to be standing with these children and to make them understanding they should come here because of this occupier they knows what we are doing here in this organization they didn't not happy to see us educated they didn't want, they're not happy to see children are having a good time so we try to make them make it clear for these kids and we have to struggle um, to this or in front of this occupier and to keep going of what we are doing. Um, beside this, if I'm talking just about children, the last three years or four years, most of the arrested cases from the children. And we're talking about age from 11 to 18. So they focus a lot in this age. Uh, lots of Kids were arrested in prison and they were in jail for two months or three months. It depends on the sentences they get. Some kids, okay, maybe for a few days and they release them. Uh, how much this is like, imagine a child like an age 14 or 13 years old staying in prison for two months. What's his situation is going to be after his release? So it caused him a lot of problems in the rest of his life. And inside the camp, even. Uh, beside of this, lots of kids were shot by the soldier. Uh, three children were killed just in the road next to the center, in the street. They were killed by the Israeli sniper. What you mentioned there about the um, the Laji Center and the work that you guys do with educating children and. Mm -hmm. um, that obviously has a very important role in the future for those children because they have sort of like an, an important 
they have like a a really important sort of like process of education going on there. But in the in the overall, like, can you talk about the importance of what the Laji Center does? Okay, the center it is the main idea when they create this organization to give a chance for these children and the youth to educating them and to grow their skills in different projects we run in the center. So we have like the music, the dance, the environmental unit, um, the summer camps, like different projects. You could even find it in, in our website or in Facebook page, the daily activities we do. And kind of the kids in the camp um, with the schools, they will never have these chances to learn through the school. So the center gives them a big chance to learn, especially in music. It's like if you want to take uh, lessons to learn to play in one of the instruments, it's really expensive. So it's the center makes it easier for these kids because everything is free for them. And I remember like when, when it was like daily uh, Israel invaded during the day, it was like a training for the musician, a training for the dancers. And you could see them uh, playing music and dancing and outside is shooting in the same moment. Like, it's like really weird, like, you know, to hear music and to hear sound of shootings, bullet, tear gas, sound bombs, and the kids are keep going. And which is, wasn't easy for us to reach this uh, step or this because the soldiers, lots of time, they invaded the center. Lots of time, they put snipers in the center. And the main goal is very clear for us. They don't want us to continue what we are doing because they know or they believe it is something like they're not like dangerous for them like to see kids or young people are educated and, and creative in the same time. And we make that clear even for them. We should keep going. And which is, was really weird like to hear the music and of what's happening outside and to see kids playing. Uh, even was more than once like 50 injury inside the center because of the soldiers sometimes they meant it, they throw the tear gas inside the building. Uh, but we resist that, uh, we struggle uh, for that because we believe of what we are doing. How did you end up getting into the photography and documenting what was happening in the camp? Yeah, so for me, I started when I was 10 years old when the center was officially established, which is, we were talking uh, in 2000. Um, I used to come like all the kids, like uh, playing, uh, dancing, uh, enjoying all, participating in most of the activities. In 2005, we came with a project, uh, the center, we have a photographer and suggesting like, who wants to learn uh, photography? Or who wants to take photos? And I was, I was said like yes, I want, uh, and I want, we were like twenty children in that moment. In the camp before two thousand five, no one in the camp has camera. Before two thousand five, lots of things happened inside the camp. No one had the chance to capture it. It's like compared to today, today or these days, it is nothing. You're talking about that time, airplanes, tanks, uh, Israeli soldier invaded. It's like. The tear gas, we know it like after 2005. Before it's just like all its heavy guns, like live bullets, just, and rockets. And this is what it was in that time. 
uh, when I goes to that photography course, we just they gave us like a film camera. It's very simply in that time. And they told us you have 30 images and you go inside the camera and take whatever you want. So we went together. We took the photos. It was like very nice. Uh, even the families or the people in the camp, they were uh, surprised to see children with the cameras uh, because they're not used to it, you know. And the end, they choose from each of us two pictures, the best two photos. And we made the first photography exhibition. For me, I came more interested on this and I want to learn more about it because I felt it's really important. So I kept practicing by myself, uh, even was like no camera for the center. When we have some visitors uh, come, I asked to take their camera and trying to take photos. And I kept going until uh, 2009. We got a project to open an official media unit in the center. So we have more stuff, like more cameras for uh, photography and videos. And we start documenting everything, the daily life in, in the camp, the personal stories, uh, the Israeli invaded. For me, I believed, or I continue with this, because it's very important tool to use it against this occupier. And as I said before, we have no one have the chance to capture what's happening. But today, anything has happened, we can manage and, cap and document it to show the people outside, especially the reality of what's happening here. Because they will never see it from the news abroad, because most of it is controlled by Zionists. Um, but I can say, in the beginning, I don't thought about it deeply. I was like still young. but. After, like I could say, 2012, the moment, uh, the first time I tried to take photos and videos of the soldier invaded, I found it like it's very hard and very dangerous, even at the same time, and I didn't know even how to deal. And I remember the first time I took the camera and I went to the street and I started taking photos, and the soldier, they uh, drive with the jeep inside the camp, I start running with the guys. I didn't know what to do to stand or what to do, so I start running with them. And then day after day, I start understanding and learning what I should do on these cases. But it wasn't easy at all for me. Um, always the soldier, they annoyed me. They asked me to leave. They More than one time, they broke my camera. More than one time, they took the footage I captured. Uh, so you never, like, you never, uh, they, will, they will never leave you alone because they're not comfy of what you're doing. And for them, I could say, they prefer me to go throw stones besides taking photos of them. Because if someone throwing stones and he shot him, no one will see or knows about it. But if someone throwing stones and I'm taking videos and capturing everything, he knows that everyone will know about what he did. So that's why always they're attacking me. Uh, I was very lucky in the beginning because I'm talking about, especially from the end of 2012 to 2013, you're talking about every day from the morning until the night, like 7 p.m. or something like this time. 
clashes inside the cam and soldier inside the camera. I'm just carrying the two cameras and trying to capturing everything. April 2013, 8th April 2013, I was here in my office. It was nothing at all in the area. No demonstrations, nothing. And just I heard sound of shittings. As usual, I took my camera, still camera. I went running to the balcony and I saw a group of soldiers just coming from the military base and we were shooting to the, uh, to the camp, like tear gas, throwing sound bombs, and rubber bullets. So I started taking photos. They come more closer and I kept continuing taking photos. Was very weird because always they shot at me to leave that they didn't talk at me at all for two hours. Even they reached inside uh, the um, entrance of the camp. And after that, they came back and they stopped in front of me. So I'm in the second floor in the balcony and they are down in the road. So about 10 meters between them. And I skipped taking photos. And I was uh, trying to capture a uh, photo of the soldier who was shooting at the kid's rubber bullet. Uh, it took like more than 20 photos of him because it was taking him so long time, like two, three minutes, and then he shot. So I didn't know when the moment he will shoot to capture the flash of his fire. And suddenly it was like three soldiers next to him, and one of them he shot at me, and he told me, "Go home." Usual, I never listen to them. Like I said, like I'm doing my work, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. That day, I felt like it's not something big comparing to other days. So I decided like, to leave. I didn't say anything. I closed the, the window of the balcony. And the moment I tried to close the door of the balcony, the soldier who was shooting at the kids, he moved his gun straightly and he shot me in my face. Um, the first thing that I remember, he was like laughing so loudly. And he was telling the other soldier near him, like, I shot him, I shot him. Okay, he shot me with rubber bullet. They call it rubber bullet, but which is not rubber bullet. Lots of Palestinians were killed from the rubber bullet they're talking about. It is, you're talking about this size. It is covered with half milliliter plastic. And all inside it's metal. So... It was damaging all my face, stacks, broken all the bones and stacks inside. This is the, the rubber bullet they're talking about. Yeah. So this is, this is what's all it's in, 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 uh, in my face when, uh, when he shot me. Takes me time to leave the center. And I was lucky my colleague was there and he trying to help me. Uh, the soldiers, they were even outside the building. We called ambulance, uh, some people to come to the camp to take me to the hospital. Uh, they couldn't manage because of the soldier. They were shooting the entrance of the camp, tear gas. Then I was pleading for 10 minutes, like in the stair down in, uh, in the center. And then I told my friend, they cannot wait anymore. We should just open the door and run and whatever will happen. Because I told him like now, I'm not fainted, I'm still, I can walk, but if I faint, it will be more harder for you to take me. So then he opened the door and we start running to the side of the camp. Even they start shooting nearby us, like tear gas and shouting at us. And I kept running until I reached my first neighborhood uh, inside the camp, the first street. And I took uh, my 
my uh, neighbor he took me with his car to the first hospital then in the hospital I had the first surgery they took the pull it off uh, after five days I had the second surgery which is take them more than eight hours uh, they made in the same time three surgeries because it was uh, no bones in the face they could use uh, most of it was like smashed uh, they take a bone from my side and they put it under the eye seven pieces of platine and I stayed about 17 days in, in hospital even the first night I was released from hospital the families the people friends from the camp they start visiting me around the 12 I went to my sister house which is she lived uh, nearby us and uh, 1 a.m more than 40 soldiers invaded my house they broke the door they have black like, masks and guns dogs to take all my family down uh, questioning them where I am uh, and my mother told him like what do you want uh, you shot him and you want to arrest him and he said like no we just want to see how he's doing I swear this is what he was telling her and she told him okay if you want him go get him in the hospital he's not here and he, said, he told him like no you, you are lying he just came back last night where is he and she told him okay if you don't believe me continue searching in the house and if you find him take him so they kept searching and breaking lots of things in my house and then they left and they told my family if you didn't uh, bring him to the military base the next morning we're gonna kill him and we're gonna send him a special forces and they can they can kill him we don't want him alive if he didn't do that so uh, then they left after that night i didn't stay at my home for two months every day i sleep in different place in in bethlehem during the two months they came to my house in the same way in the middle of the night I annoyed my family arrested some of my brothers for three times after i felt uh, better of my injury i decided to back home the first night i back home more than 100 soldiers invaded my house beated most of my family my uncles my grandmother my family brothers until they find me in one of the rooms and uh, they beat me so hardly uh, even they just moved me on the floor with their feet and their guns um, and they were, I was like telling them like pick me whatever you want but not in, in the face because I am injured and the moment they say that they meant it and they hit me in my face again and then they took me from my house walking to the military base and uh, even didn't let me wear my shoes or anything so I was walking from here my house to the military base you're talking about 300 meters or 400 um, they took me to the prison I, I was there in uh, for more than about like eight days I, they took me for interrogation um, the whole interrogation mainly was about because I was taking photos I was doing uh, videoing of the clashes and Israeli invaded inside the camp um, and I said yes I did that because I was publishing it in social media 
So then he starts saying, like, also you were involved with demonstrations and uh, throwing stones. So then I start feeling like he wants to create a story to put it front of, uh, against me to charge me in prison. So I said, like, no, the only things I was doing, documenting and doing my work as a journalist. So I went for, like, five courts. Each court, um, they tried to make a new story for my arrest. The last court, the judgment here, he decided to release me, and he told me, "You gonna pay five hundred dollar, and will we and we will release you, uh, but that means your case is still ongoing, and when we have more details, we can back and arrested you again." So since July two thousand thirteen. Until today, still my case is going. But the first three years, I was going every month to the court, waiting for hours, like six hours, seven hours. When I get inside the court, they told me, we delayed your court for the next month. So just to give me half time. Uh, one of the reasons also they start looking for me and they want to try, put me in a prison, because when I was in the hospital, um, I put a lawyer and I want to make a case against the soldier who shot me because I have lots of photos of him. So after that moment, they start looking for any reason, any excuse to put it in front of me, my case, to say that I wasn't taking photos. I was like throwing stones or something else. And then they can uh, cancel, uh, then I can cancel the case I made it against their soldier. Thanks for sharing sharing that story. Um, like, what what impact is it even possible to say? Like, what impact has this had on your life as like uh, as a Palestinian and the, the work that you're obviously still doing, the thing that they don't want you to do. Yeah. So, like, how how has that shaped what you're doing today? Look, that he thought like when that soldier he shot me, it wasn't about like he just wanted to shoot me. He was he trying to kill me, you know, if I was, you know, the only things it helps me that he was down and I was up. So the bullet goes like this. If I was straight, immediately I will die. So he thought that if he do, did that to me, that I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. But he was totally wrong. Uh, I felt like I should keep going because he shot me. It's come like a challenge for me. And I felt it's more important what I'm doing after he shot me. So I keep doing it, whatever happened. Even after my release, I went back to the street and I started documenting again. And even some of them, they were surprised. And one of the Israeli commander, he was in the street. He stopped me and he told me, you're the one who was shot one month ago or two months ago. And I told him, yes, what's the problem? He said, like, you're not afraid to come back. I told him why I should be afraid. I will be in the street until the moment like you're here. Whenever you're here, I will be here. And even if you kill me, uh, someone else will do this job or he will do photography or any of these children 
you will see in the cam, he will take my position and continue what I was doing. So don't think like if you shoot me, if you kill me, that we're gonna stop doing this. So he started taking photos of me and then he left. Um, what I'm doing, it is, of course, it's very important. Okay, mainly I work in, in Aida and Bethlehem area, but most of the time it's in Aida. It's very important to show what's really happening here. Because I said, as I said, like if you go to like the videos I captured or the photos I captured, there's no way most of these footage to see it in any of the channels outside, like CNN, BBC, they always hide things about Palestine. The famous images, maybe you could see children throwing stones or youth throwing stones. But have ever they talks about why these kids are throwing stones? They never. They always hide it. So from here, as a Palestinian, when we talk about ourselves and we document of what's happening here, we show the reality as it is without changing anything in it. Because we will no need to to lie or to change any of what we have. Because this is the truth, you know. So to show of what's happened here abroad, it is very important to make the other people who doesn't know anything of what's happening here and aware and open their eyes if it's like really this is what happened in Palestine. It's not as you learn from the Zionist media about Palestine. And where did the community health worker project come from? That did you have in Laji? The community health project because we have no clinic inside the camp. Maybe soon they will work on Orwa on it. But the idea comes because we have no clinic in the camp. So six youth from the camp they are in charge with this unit. The project it was uh, supported from um, organization. It's called One Four Three. Uh, it is different uh, people are working in it, like Palestinian, uh, American, Lebanese, different uh, people. And to fund uh, this unit, which is this youth who in charge in this unit, they go to the people house, especially to the old people, uh, checking from time to time, blood pressure, uh, diabetes. Uh, if we have emergency cases, we're trying to take them to the hospital. Uh, so try to help the basic things as much we can. Uh, is there particular <laughs> are there particular health problems in the camp because of the conditions that you're living under and the occupation? I could say yes. We have a quite high number of uh, people having uh, blood pressure, uh, diabetes. Uh, even we have lots of doctors comes here, and lots of them they saying, especially the blood, the one who has a blood pressure because of the situation in the camp and the struggle, like the, all what's happening here in, in Aida. So this is like a high number of like really have people have high uh, pressure, like a uh, problem with that. Um, it will quit because, you know, the tear gas, they shot tear, a lot of tear gas in the camp. In the beginning of 2018, it was a release of... Uh, the report that United Nations worked in inside the camp about the tear gas, and they released the result of that research, and they found out Aida camp it is the most place was attacked by uh, the, the most place was tear gas 
by the Israel army in the war, not just in Palestine. So a lot of children or young people or some people from the camp, they have asthma. They have a problem with their bodies because the tear gas they shot here doesn't affect just your eye or your breath. It affected a lot of things. If you have sensitive body, it will swelling in your face uh, or the breath. takes yeah, time to back as normal. Uh, so yeah, that this kind of issues we have mainly. It must have a very big impact on like mental health as well. Mental health? Yeah, like, like, like depression and um, things like that. Is, that. is that very common in the camp? There is a little bit. Like I could say even more uh, from people who was shot, like with live bullet, like in their legs, especially the one legs or in any part of the body, it effect, affecting them like they cannot work anything they can, uh, they want. Uh, not easy like to move because of what they have and they have gotten. Yeah, I suppose that the Laji Center does a lot to, to bring, to give people opportunities that they just wouldn't have otherwise in terms of giving them like a creative outlet, something creative. And like, I know like you guys have traveled abroad quite a few times as well, like with the dance. Yeah, like, we did. Um, and almost every year we're trying to uh, to make the culturing tour, taking a group of children and youth um, to share their stories uh, and to share uh, also what they have, like uh, dance or music, uh, photography, video, which is talk about Palestine through art, which is from these children and the youth. Um, so, yeah. What's the best thing that like international kind of friends can do for Palestine and for the situation that you have there? Um, I think of what you're doing now, it's one of important things for us as a Palestinian. Uh, as a Palestinian, it's not just uh, always we're looking for money, you know. The most important, if people start making events related to Palestine, even if you're just showing a film, or a photography exhibition, uh, or if when something happened in Palestine and you made a demonstration in the street just with carrying posters, this is gonna help a lot as a Palestinian, give support uh, uh, to us even when we saw these images from outside to see people are really standing and caring about us, this is very important for us. Also, the people they could go for the BDS, which is the boycott, uh, movements. This is one of the important tools to put the pressure on this occupier from abroad when you boycott Israel, not just food, uh, academically, politically, uh, in different way. You could make effect on this uh, occupation. It will make them thinking a little bit that people uh, in the world are aware now of what's happening in Palestine. Uh, so at least they will stop what they're doing against uh, the Palestinian. So any small events, any things they could do people abroad for Palestine, it's really useful, I could say. Are there times when you feel that the international community don't see what's happening in Palestine? Like, do you feel isolated? Uh, I'm talking about it now. It is better than before, a couple of years ago. Today, it is more people are aware of what's happening, and which is this is good. But in the past, was like not much 
people, they really knows about it. Even my first time I traveled, when people asked me, where are you from? And I said, Palestine. And they said, Pakistan. You know, imagine. So even they didn't know there is a country called Palestine because the media outside is controlling their mind. It's making them blind, the people. They didn't know, they can't see, they, they, can, they didn't know anything of what's happening. But it's today a little bit has changed in different countries in, in the world or for, uh, for what's happening in here in, in Palestine. Do you ever think about what the future might hold for Palestine or how you would like to see things going? I mean, we're always thinking about it, but it doesn't give me as a Palestinian hope one or two percent that it's going to end soon, you know, of this situation. Uh, the occupation is still ongoing and every day taking more lands from Palestine. Every day we have martyr in different places in, in Palestine. Uh, I don't feel like they're really they're going to look for a solution to end this conflict here. Uh, even the Palestinian Authority, like an example, they're talking about two-state solution and one-state solution. As a Palestinian, if I go for two-state solution, it doesn't end of what's happening. Because majority of Palestinians are refugees from the land 1948. Two-state solution, you're talking about land 67. So you don't end the problem. If you really you want to end the problem, it's supposed to be one state solution uh, with equal rights and justice for everyone. And this is what will happen. But Israel, they will never accept it, one state solution. At all, they will never. So that's why it's very hard sometimes to think about the future of this country. But in the same time, we have the hope and we always live for this hope that one day this occupier will end, or this occupation will end. And this is the only thing that makes us ongoing uh, with our life in, in Palestine. As an individual person, like, do, you, do you think about your future and what you want to do with your life? Um, okay, as I said in the beginning, I started uh, photography and video through the center, and basic things are mainly from practicing, but now I just sitting like six, since 2016, I started in university and learning uh, film productions. Uh, so I'm thinking to make it better of work what I'm doing and start creating uh, better uh, documentaries and films in general about Palestine. This is one of my goals and I could see how I see myself for now. On a day-to-day -day basis, like what are the biggest restrictions that Palestinian have, Palestinians have under the occupation in the West Bank? I can say like after the Palestinian Authority, uh, some people abroad, they have the idea that we have our own country. Now we have our own soldiers. But in the same time, they didn't know it's like a plague, all what we have. Uh, it's just names more than doing for us as a Palestinian. What I need are uh, Palestinian soldiers or authority, and they cannot protect me when the soldier invaded the camp, which is it's under Palestinian control, but they still can and attacking us. So it doesn't mean anything for us. Um, in West Bank, kind of 
we live in a big prison after the apartheid war. Uh, lots of checkpoints. Okay, the only way we can move just inside West Bank between the cities, but still in the same time, it's not easy. If I want uh, to go to Ramallah, it takes me one hour, two hours. It depends on the situation in the checkpoint or the mood of the soldier. If they stop us in the checkpoint, that means we're going to lose our day just uh, waiting for that. Uh, so it's not easy to move. Uh, I always heard about when I was in my childhood, like about our rights as a human. And one of it is like a restriction of movements. But I never felt it here in Palestine. Because I swear it's not easy. If you want to do anything, any small plan, it's always hard because you know it will take time to move or to go. You know, if there is no checkpoint, no wall, I can reach Ramallah in 20 minutes. After the wall and the checkpoint, it takes us more than one hour and two hours sometimes. Jerusalem, nearby the camp, seven kilometers. We cannot reach it. My home village, it's 30 minutes driving from Ida. I can't reach it. If, this is a, one of the big things I could say for us as a Palestinian, which is not easy to can move wherever you want. Sometimes it's really funny. I can manage to go to uh, Ireland, but not to Jerusalem, you know. And this moment you th you're thinking about it, it is like really hard. The moment sometimes I travel outside, uh, the most things I like, uh, which is I can move freely. Uh, I know if I want to go from uh, Cork to Dublin, it will be no checkpoints. You know, no one will annoy me, or uh, and nothing will happen to me. This is different feeling. Uh, every Palestinian looking for just one day to have, or to see Palestine like this. You can move easily, or feel safe in, in this land. So the main things I can say for me as a Palestinian, I'm missing like freedom, and feeling safe, or secure. So we never have this at all, with all the agreements, even Israel and Palestinian government, they have done doesn't change anything in Palestine. How does the permit system work that you have this there? You have to have a permit for like nearly everything? You're talking about more than 100 type of permits. Family visiting permits, workers, medication, uh, working, uh, using your land, different uh, kind of permits they're making. And every day they add new ones and new things. If like in I'm talking about Bethlehem, you know, there is areas A and C and B. Some Palestinian, lots of Palestinians, they own lots of land in area C. So they're not allowed to build in houses on these lands, but they can't plant, they can plant in it, you know. But the only way to plant in it, they have to take a permit from Israel to use the land. And always they make it complicated uh, for these farmers. Um, 
if someone he wants to make a surgery in Jerusalem in one of the hospitals there, if they cannot do it in West Bank, they have to apply for a permit to go there. Personally, uh, after my injury, one year I had problem again in my eye. So in West Bank they cannot really do it, and there is better doctors, Palestinian doctors in in Jerusalem. So the only way I have to go there, I applied once for this medication permit and they didn't give it to me. They, they refused it, uh, especially for young people, not easy at all. They always refuse it. If they want to give it to young people, they will say, okay, come for an interview or for integration in the military base. And they will start talking with these young people. If you work with us, give us information and things, we could give you a permit for 24 hours in any moment you can go wherever you want. And they do it a lot. Uh, they suggest that to lots of Palestinians to do this because they know they need it. Um, even if you want to travel outside Palestine, they control you. Uh, to go, which is as a Palestinian, the only way to go to uh, Europe or any countries, we have to cross the border to go to Jordan. Sometimes they stop you for a couple of hours or they can return you back, which has happened to me. They stopped me once uh, after my injury and I was re after I released from prison, I tried to go to Jordan. They stopped me for four hours and then they told me you're not allowed to travel. And they gave me paper and he told me you have an integration in the military base. So they always uh, control us everything. If they have the chance, as I always we say, to control the air we smell, we have, they will. This is the goal of each occupation. They want us whatever we need to go and ask them for it. They always want us to back to them and ask them for a permit for anything we want to do. So that's why they're controlling the water, the electricity and the main things in Palestine. Because if we have everything, then well, this is uh, doesn't work. It will not work for them. That's like we're getting everything as a free person. But there is no way. They always want to control us with everything. To keep all the time asking them and to keep all the time thinking how I'm going to go get there, how I'm going to manage to go to the city, how I'm going to manage to have water. So this is what they're working on to make us thinking all the time of our life and our problems, how we're going to fix it. So that, that really highlights the importance of the work that you guys are doing in Laji because that's they're not they're not achieving their objective with yeah. making you have to go back and ask for everything because like in that center you guys are doing things for yourselves look in in our organization okay it is ngos organization but we didn't have a regular fund the way how we work if we have a project supported it's ongoing so every year we're working on to get a project a new project to keep going the activities and inside the center. Even we don't do any normalization, which is, you know, in this land, it's very easy to do this. And if the moment you do normalization, you will get lots of money. What is, the, what is normalization? Which is 
like USAID money. If uh, like from USAID, they give a lots of money for very empty projects for Palestinian uh, or uh, Israeli organization. They sometimes they suggest to you to work with Palestinian and Israelis together. We always refusing this kind of ideas because it doesn't make sense. If I'm gonna take from the American government money, you know, and in the same time I know American not believing in Palestinian rights, and the Israel organization they don't believe in the Palestinian rights. So why we should work with them? So that's why it's make it more harder for us in the center to manage always with the money because we suffering from that. Even sometimes we had chance to take a project from one of the organization. And they want to us to work as the goal they have. They force us to work as they want us to, as they want us to work. Uh, so in 2018, the first two, uh, four months, it was no enough money for the center. So we didn't have salary for all the workers we have in the center for four months. Because if we're going to pay the salary for the workers, that's, it will not be money to keep to running the projects we have in the center. So because that, because of lots of big organizations who give funds, they stop giving to Palestine. A lots of organizations, even we used to work, they start uh, putting like um, points for us and they want us to work for the, for that as they want us to work. So we refuse a few projects, even because of that. Uh, so today I could say for the center, mainly from donation, most of uh, the work I could say it's uh, ongoing. A few projects, okay, we get fund for it, but most of our work it's from donation, it comes. The playground in, in the center here, which is, was very, very expensive, uh, none of the the donors they gonna buy land for us. They will give a project maybe to make it in the land, but not to buy a land for you. So we made our our best to get this land, and mainly I could say it's from donation and from our friends that we know. This is how we work usually. Uh, so yeah, and look, I, I I believe as a Palestinian of what we're doing. Okay, it will not make Palestine free, but at least it will help for now. It will educating uh, the young people, the children, to have a better uh, gener generation. Uh, even you make people aware outside Palestine, it's very useful for sure. Um, imagine in the camp, we didn't have a garden. We didn't have a football soccer for the children. How it will be their life? They will just gonna be playing on the street inside the camp between the normal street. Uh, these activities, these projects, uh, it's, it's make these kids uh, or gives them a chance at least, like to grow their skills uh, or to get to help them to have a better future, at least when they grow up. They have things they could do, at least, with all the situation it's around. Are you worried about the the 
Donald Trump and making Jerusalem the sort of like capital of Israel and stuff like that? Is that having has that had an effect on your on your life since that happened? Um, and I think and already they having the the embassy of America. It was like mainly in uh, in Tel Aviv. Okay, so. It's not something new for me as a Palestinian. They already have it, but the only thing just changed, they move it to Jerusalem. And for me as a Palestinian, if I'm talking about Palestine, it's all the land for it's Palestine. So it's not just Jerusalem for me, you know? So it is affecting me since the moment it was in Tel Aviv before they move it to Jerusalem. So it will not make sense for me if I... If all the Palestinians they supposed to protest, they they supposed to do it before he move it to Jerusalem because it's also in uh, what is called today Tel Aviv, which is it, it's Haifa and Yaffa. This is also Palestine. So in my perspective, not much things has changed because already they they're taking it and they having uh, the uh, the land. So it's just they move it from this place to this place. But Trump. I could say like uh, people they're saying like he's stupid, but in my perspective he's not. He's he knows very well what he's doing. Uh, he's more than a Zionist. I could say the way how he's thinking, how he's uh, doing in general against the Palestinian, and it's really makes me a weird, uh, worry about it a little bit. Which is now they're talking about. Uh, Maybe you heard it. The last uh, agreement they're talking about to make, to take all Palestinians to Sina. So this plan, uh, they will talk about it. They said after Ramadan, which is after May, but we will see what will can happen. So this is very uh, hard, like to see it, and it's very dangerous. And in the same time, for us as a Palestinian, uh, I would respect it anything uh, or expected anything from this uh, Trump against Palestine. So in the end, any, all the presidents of Israel and America, none of them one day they will come and stand for Palestine. You know, they all they will do their best to uh, to work and make any plans against Palestine. One thing that would be good to mention at this point would be that the Eurovision Song Contest, which is being held in Tel Aviv, and yeah. unfortunately Ireland are still sending somebody to the to the Eurovision Song Contest. But for people that are listening to this, I think it's it's an important thing to highlight that that that's a part of the BDS movement as well, not to support the Eurovision Song Contest and to to do something kind of in protest against it and i know that we have actually we have a an event in cork on uh -huh. the 18th the 17th or 18th of may the same night as the, as the eurovision uh as kind of like a counter a counter event in protest to it and i think that it's very important for for irish people who would be listening to this to that's an opportunity to do something small but to do something active that'll to make make people aware that they're um that the Eurovision Song Contest shouldn't be supported when it's going on in Israel. How can people uh, check out your work? Uh, we have uh, for the center uh, YouTube channel, Laji Center. We have the Facebook page, uh, which is mainly the daily activities you could see in the page, which is under the name of Laji Center. 
Uh, we have uh, also uh, the website of the center, www.lagi.org. Um, my uh, photography personal page also under my name. Uh, not the personal one, it's like another one just for photography, posting like uh, pictures or videos of what's happening inside the camp. Uh, and also my uh, YouTube channel as well. You could see with some videos and stories there. Um, I can put the links for them into the, the notes for the, the podcast as well so people can check it out. Um, actually, I had yeah. another question. Are you worried about the... Okay, thanks very much for taking the time and um, sharing your personal story and like speaking on more about what's going on in the camp and stuff and the situation there. Uh, uh, thank you for you also and for all what you're doing. Um... I know, and hopefully next time we'll talk about the free Palestine situation. <laughs> I hope so. That's another episode down of Hard Thanks a million for listening. And if you're still here, then I'm sure that was quite tough to listen to. And personally, when I hear people like Muhammad talking about what's happening in Palestine and sharing stories like that, that you just won't hear on the news, it really makes me want to do something positive to be active and to help out in some way. And one way that you can do that right now is to get behind the project to build this Palestine community gym in the Lazi Centre. Go to GoFundMe, find us under the Palestine community gym and give a couple of quid to make this thing happen. As I mentioned earlier, we started the Tunes for Palestine campaign this week as well. Hashtag Tunes for Palestine, the number four. If you're a musician, play a tune, stick a couple of quid in the pot, nominate a couple of other people and help us build the awareness and get this show properly off the ground. It is a massive undertaking and there is a team of us here working, kind of working around the clock now to make this happen. But it's not going to happen by itself and we need your help to get the funds together and in any other way that you can lend a hand. If you want to organise an event to donate the proceeds of that event to the project, then you can do that. Just get in touch with me through any of the social media that we're on, either the Palestine Community, Jim Ones, Ackley or the Rebel Matters, or if we're friends on Facebook, then just drop me a message on that as well. I'm loving doing these podcasts and I'm just very grateful of the opportunity to be able to meet the people that are, have been coming on the show and the opportunity to speak to you on a weekly basis and to hear back from you and to start building this little podcast community around the Rebel Matters podcast. So keep coming back every week and sharing the love around. Biggie Jasmine, Hela Cardigil, Slang of White.